Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing Strange But True, The Life and Adventures of Captain Thomas Crapo and Wife, published in New Bedford in 1893. We're on part 10, continuing chapter 4. Chapter 4, Across the Atlantic Ocean in a Dory Boat, continued. This Alexander Palace, as it is called, is a grand affair. The large brick building covers a great many acres to all appearances, and the grounds cover a great many more. The show consists of circus, minstrel, museum, opera, drama, aquarium, horse racing, cricket, baseball, and a hundred and one other things too numerous to mention. We were engaged at a large salary, and the crowds that flocked around us were surprising. There was no end to the questions asked, which must at all times be answered civilly. Many times the same question would be asked dozens of times during the day and evening, which, though very aggravating, must be put up with as we were hired to answer questions and must treat everyone with due respect. Several of the royal family attended while we were there. The outdoor exhibitions in the evening were magnificent, to say the least, and crowds were going and coming all the time. The price of admission only entitled the holder of the ticket to an entrance to the building, then each performance had a cash price of its own. To take in the whole affair would take several days and nights, and would cost quite a little sum of money besides. There is nothing in the United States that can begin to compare with it. We remained there about six weeks, and were visited by thousands of people, each one elbowing their way to get as near to us as possible, and the rush held on from early morn until late at night. As fast as one would draw out, others took their places. After completing our contract, we contracted to go to Liverpool to a place called Rock Ferry Garden on the Birkenhead side. We had no trouble in securing large salaries, as those in charge knew that the crowds attracted to see us would be large, and so they were. Sea captains, young and old, visited us, and many wondered how I came to take such a dangerous voyage, knowing the ocean as I did. One in particular, an old grey-haired veteran, came several times to see and talk with us about the passage. Seafaring men, in particular, forced their way in where they could to shake hands with us, and Mrs. Crapo was surrounded most of the time by the gentler sex, who seemed to admire her courage in risking her life in such a frail craft. The same questions were asked over and over again. Everybody seemed to want to ask something. Our autographs were asked for by hundreds of people, and we did our best to please everybody. We remained there about five weeks, when we started for Oldham to fill an engagement there. We exhibited in what is called the Alexander Skating Rink. We remained two weeks, when we went to Brighton, a well-known watering place. We exhibited at the King's Road Skating Rink, where we were again surrounded by large crowds of people. We remained there for a long time. We were visited a great many times by a gentleman named Ashbury or Ashbury, who at the time was awaiting the arrival of President Grant in his tour around the world. He told us that he would do his best to have the President call on us during his stay. On his arrival at the gentleman's home, we sent a written invitation to him, but as his time was about all taken up, he could not do so. But after his departure, we received a letter from Mr. Ashbury's secretary stating that the President sent us his regrets in not being able to call on us, as he would have been pleased to do so. The letter was unfortunately lost later in an incident where a car was burnt 
in Mobley, Montana. After completing our engagement, we went to a place called Worthing, about 12 miles from Brighton, where we exhibited in another rink. We remained about two weeks and during the time were visited by thousands who came expressly to see us. From there we returned to Brighton again and exhibited in what is called the Brighton West Pier, which is a promenade built out over the water. We remained there about two weeks when we again returned to London, where we secured passage on the ocean steamship Canada. Our boat was brought over free of charge and a pleasant time we had. We left London for New York January the 4th, 1878 and was 16 days on the passage, which was far pleasanter than our passage over. Everything was done that we could wish for to make it pleasant for us. Mrs. Crapo especially enjoyed the return passage very much. On our arrival in New York, we were much sought for by agents of museums and other shows. My wife strongly objected to exhibiting in a museum no matter what salary was offered. We therefore hired a place on Broadway and exhibited the boat about two weeks. At that time, there was a large company at Gilmore's Garden, now called Madison Square Garden. We closed the place on Broadway and went there. While there, we engaged to join a circus that at that time was in winter quarters, but was soon to open at the garden. When they opened, we were assigned a place in the menagerie where the crowds flocked around us, asking all sorts of questions. The American people take the cake in asking questions, and they kept us quite busy. We sold hundreds of photographs of ourselves in the boat. We remained there about six weeks when we started on the road. When exhibiting our boat, we had her two masts in and all sail set, and she could be seen from one end of the tent to the other, so everybody flocked around us to get a close view of her. Right here, I wish to say that the news of our sail across the Atlantic and our safe arrival was daily commented on, and many papers and magazines inserted long pieces about it. The London Standard of July 23rd, just after our arrival, printed a long and accurate account which was copied by many others. The New York Police News copied it, and through its medium it was well circulated. The book, called The Young Scientist, gave a good and lengthy description of our voyage, coupled with pictures of situations. We have in our possession many papers which spoke very nicely about it, also many that are printed in other languages which we do not understand, yet we keep them as mementos of our eventful voyage. I here call my reader's attention to one from a correspondent dated Penzance, Sunday, which was the day we went on shore on our arrival in England, which will give a fair idea of the others. It read thus, I was startled this morning, just at the commencement of church, to hear that the boat which had left America for England, with only a man and woman on board, had arrived at Penzance. On glancing along the promenade, I saw right away under Newlin a little boat with two masts lying at anchor, while surrounding her were a cluster of Newlin boats filled with spectators who had come to see the wonderful little craft. The New Bedford is a boat about 20 feet long and of the registered tonnage of 1 and 62 one hundredths, a little over 1 and one half tons. She carries two masts, one anchor and a drogue. She is built of cedar and is rigged at what is known a leg of mutton rig schooner. The name of the owner is Captain Thomas Crapo, aged 35, who with his wife has so bravely crossed the Atlantic in so tiny a craft. The voyage was commenced on May the 28th, when the little vessel left New Bedford, but by stress of weather she had to put into Chatham, Massachusetts, where she stayed until the 2nd of June, when the sails were again hoisted, and the little pygmy 
left on her perilous voyage with a fair wind. It then goes on to illustrate what we pass through, which my readers are already familiar with, and ends up thus. Among the many extraordinary things connected with the voyage is that it had to be run by dead reckoning, as the new Bedford was not large enough to carry a chronometer. Captain and Mrs. Crapo seemed wonderfully well after the hardships they had undergone, though the captain has a bad hand, and when he came ashore it was firmly clenched through being forced to steer for seventy hours without rest. The house they stopped at was invaded by a multitude of people eager to shake hands with so brave a couple. The boat was also an object of interest and was admired by hundreds of people. No one knows the loneliness of the ocean but those who have experienced it, and apart from the question of peril, which probably the captain would not dwell upon too strongly, the pair must have known that they were undertaking a task as trying to the brain from its monotony as to the physical powers from its constant strain upon them. Luckily, the only accident was a broken rudder and the loss of a trifling item of gearing, and the lady's greatest complaint is that she could not sleep for the whales, and the captain's was that he could not stretch his limbs. His hand is still numb from his hard labour at the tiller, but will undoubtedly be all right again in a short time. At last we were booked for the season to travel with Howe's Great London Circus, and left New York for Newark, Connecticut, Sunday, May 28th, where we were to exhibit the following day. We exhibited in most of the large cities throughout New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Missouri, Kansas, Iowa, Tennessee, Wisconsin, and West Virginia. The most exciting experience while with them was while we were asleep in the train, which was sidetracked at Mobley, Missouri, when all of a sudden someone cried fire, and on looking out of the window we saw that the baggage car which contained the baggage of the show, including many of our clothes and presents given to us in England, was a mass of flames. Everything was burned to ashes before our eyes, as there was no chance whatever to put the fire out. Nothing was left but the ironwork, which was the only part that would not burn. We were very sorry to lose our things, especially our presents, but it could not be helped, so we had to make the best of it. The last place we exhibited with them was in Brooklyn. As we had been roaming around with them about six months, we decided to leave and return to New Bedford with our boat, which we did, and as we had done, as we intended to in crossing to England, we were not ashamed to return to our starting place, as we had the laugh all on our side this time. I remained in New Bedford through the winter, and in the spring I bought a schooner named the James Parker Senior of 105 tons burthen, and started in the coasting trade as captain and owner. Mrs. Crapo went with me, and had a good chance to see considerable of the country along the coast, we carried a great many different cargoes during the season, some up the Connecticut and Hudson Rivers. Early in November, I laid her alongside the wharf at New London, Connecticut for the winter. Mrs. Crapo and myself kept house on board and took as much comfort as though installed in a mansion. We could go ashore when we chose and have just as good a time. Early in the following spring, I had a good offer for the vessel, so I accepted it and returned to New Bedford where I remained but a few days when I bought another one named the Adela Felicia of 120 tons register. My first cargo was for Middleton, Connecticut, and as soon as I arrived I sent for Mrs. Crapo to join me, which she did. We sailed her throughout the summer until nearly Christmas, 
while I hauled alongside the wharf at New Bedford for the winter and started again in the spring, running to and from different ports from Maine to Virginia, wherever we could get a paying cargo. And late in the fall, we again put in at New Bedford for winter quarters. The following spring, we started again and took a cargo wherever or whenever we could get it. We continued through the warm months, and as soon as cold weather set in, we hauled up this time at Wareham on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. When warm weather opened, we again began plying our trade, and continued to do so until September 1883, when I sold the vessel. I sold her while lying at anchor at Port Chester, New York, and was to deliver her at Perth Amboy, New Jersey, as soon as we discharged our cargo. After delivering her, Mrs. Crapo and myself returned to New Bedford and settled down to housekeeping, as my wife declared she was not going to see any more. In March of the following year, I bought the schooner Gusty Wilson of 141 tons register and ran her through the season. As cold weather set in, I chartered to go to the West Indies. I went from the West Indies to Maracaibo to load for New York. On arriving at Maracaibo, I had to take on a pilot and go up the lagoon about 150 miles. The scenery was quite pleasing, and many houses could be seen built on spiles out into the water. And alligators, there was no end to them. The lagoons were full of them. The pilot and I took the schooner's boat and went up a small bay or lagoon, as they are called, and had great sports shooting at them. I fired all the cartridges I had and would have fired many more if I had had them. Their skins were so tough that a bullet from a revolver didn't seem to have much effect on them. Nevertheless, we enjoyed it as much as though every shot we fired had killed one. They would drag themselves up on the bank and lay for hours with their eyes shut, and you would think that they were dead, but touch them in any way, and they would soon show you to the contrary. As we had no more cartridges to fire at them, we went on board and continued on our way up the lagoon. Upon reaching our destination, we anchored in about three fathoms of water, and we began to make preparations for receiving our cargo. We were to load cedar logs, which were rafted out to us by men on shore. While loading, I went on deck one day after finishing my dinner, and on looking around I saw what appeared to be the smoke of a steamer. I spoke of it to the pilot who had not yet finished his dinner. I said, here is a steamer coming our way. In a few minutes he came on deck, and on looking in the direction I pointed, he smiled and says, that is no steamer. Whereupon I inquired what it was if it wasn't a steamer. Well, says he, that is a flock of mosquitoes. I looked at him, thinking he was joking me, but I saw he was in earnest. I had heard of clouds of mosquitoes, but had never seen one before. They were actually so thick that they would darken the sun like a cloud passing before it. I watched them for a considerable length of time, hoping they would draw nearer, but they seemed to remain about the same distance away as at first. What a sad predicament a fellow would be in to be surrounded by a cloud of hungry mosquitoes, especially in a swamp where he could not get any shelter from them. He would stand a poor show of getting out alive, as they would suck every particle of blood he had in him in a very short time. I found before I left there that it was no unusual sight to see large clouds of them, as they made their appearance several times during our stay. We loaded all the logs that they had, and then went down to Maracaibo to take on enough to complete our cargo. As soon as we finished loading, we sailed for New York and experienced a very rough passage, but we arrived without serious accident and discharged our cargo and chartered to load coal at Elizabethport, New Jersey, for Provincetown on Cape Cod. From Provincetown, I ran in at New Bedford 
and hauled up for several days, as there was so much ice in the bay, it was not much pleasure to try to run, as freights were so low and it took so long to go from one place to the other that there was not much left after paying expenses, so I thought I would wait a few days to see if some of the ice wouldn't drift out to sea. While at the wharf, I had a good offer for her, but I decided to let her remain my property a while longer at least. I chartered to take a cargo from Haven Straw to Mosquito Inlet, Florida. We loaded brick, cement and other material for Mason's use. We had 80,000 brick on board and had to land them through the surf, which was a dangerous task. All had to be carried in our yawl boat, and as we neared the shore, we had to jump overboard and hold on to the boat to keep her from tipping over and spilling the brick. She was nearly half full of water every time we carried a load ashore, where the surf would dash over her. It was tedious work, and took us about two weeks. We were wet through from daylight to dark, which was not very pleasant, yet, as the water was warm, we did not suffer much from exposure. It was a pleasing sound when it was announced that we had the last of them. After unloading, we sailed for Jacksonville, Florida, to load hard pine for New London, Connecticut. From there, I went to New Bedford, where I remained about three weeks. During my stay, a schooner arrived loaded with corn for parties in New Bedford. While entering the harbour, she struck on a rock, and by the time she reached the wharf, she sank. I was chartered to take the cargo out of her and load it into my vessel, which took us about a week, working a large gang day and night. We finished at last and started for New York, where we arrived safe and sound, and began unloading, which was a very hard job, as the corn was a dirty, soggy mess, and we were glad when it was all out. From there, we sailed to Elizabethport and loaded coal for Wareham, and discharging, we returned to New York and chartered to load for Jacksonville, Florida. Our cargo consisted of material for life-saving stations. At this same time, I agreed to take two more cargoes of the same kind down the Florida coast. We had more or less rough weather, but nothing serious happened. The brick, paint, oils and cement we had to carry on shore in our yawl boat, and about every time we went ashore in her, she would capsize in the surf, and we had to keep our eyes open and get it on shore before it got spoiled in the surf. The lumber and shingles we rafted ashore, the surf was so heavy that every time we rafted a load ashore, the raft would go to pieces and scatter it all along the beach, and it was fortunate that there was a large gang on shore to catch at it, or a great deal would probably have been lost. We had this to go through in five different places where a certain quantity was to be left. After finishing the last, which was put ashore on the Injun River, we went to Jacksonville, where we were to load hard pine for New York. While unloading, I was chartered to take a load of hard pine from Jacksonville to St. Thomas in the West Indies and was allowed the privilege of taking a cargo to Jacksonville, which would be far better for me than to go empty. I found a cargo at last and proceeded to put it on board. It consisted of 147.5 tons of railroad iron, not a very desirable cargo, but it was take that or take nothing, and as I was in a hurry, I took it. The worst of all was that we had to keep about 40 ton on deck. All sailors object to a deck load, and none are to blame for it, as it is always in the way, especially in heavy weather or a gale of wind. I had at the time a crew of six men, so with plenty of help, we were ready for a start in a very short time after we began loading. We left New York August 18th and had very good weather, and by the 25th we were off Cape Hatteras in company with a fleet of about 20 other vessels, and the wind was beginning to blow very strong from the southwest, and before night set in, 
The sky was very heavy, and the wind was howling through the rigging. The wind increased as the night went by, and before morning it was blowing a hurricane. The swell had changed to a heavy sea, and the vessel's rails were underwater most of the time. Our cargo was a dead weight in her. If it had been lumber or some buoyant material, she would have behaved far better. These are the times when good seamanship is required to weather a gale. Yet, with a cargo of iron, we stood a very poor show. But we would do all that could be done, and if there was any chance of saving the vessel and cargo, we would do so. And rain. How it did pour down. We did not mind it very much as we were all wet completely through already by the seas breaking over the vessel. For several hours, we ran with her prow pointing right into the gale. We did not dare to show much canvas, for the gale was growing more and more furious all the time, and she had all she could do to live in such an angry sea. At three o'clock, Wednesday morning, August 26th, a remarkable incident occurred. The wind suddenly ceased, and for about two minutes there was a dead calm. The waves, raised by the gale, were running fifty or sixty feet high, and our little schooner was one moment on the crest of a tremendous billow, and the next she would sink way down in the trough with her masts barely reaching above the crest of the high seas. The lull in the storm was very brief, and I was about to put more sail on her when the wind came from the northeast, which my readers will see was directly opposite what it had been blowing and blew harder than ever. The wind was blowing at least seventy miles an hour. With the wind blowing in one direction and the seas running in another, it made the water fearfully rough, and it required good seamanship to keep her heading right. Had we been caught in such a way as to bring her side to the storm, with the wind against her on one side and the heavy seas on the other, it would have founded her in a moment's time. But we were very fortunate so far in keeping her head into it. About half past five, we shipped a heavy sea which carried away our jibboom and started a leak in our night's heads, and it now began to look dark for us. She would, in all probability, make water very fast as she was straining so heavily, and to make matters worse, our foretopmast was carried away, which made her labour very hard. I soon discovered that she was taking in water faster than I had anticipated she would, and I made up my mind that unless the gale abated very speedily, there was no hope for us, and by seven o'clock I told the crew to make ready to abandon her to her fate. Well, that's the end of today's chapter, and we're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. 
So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Thank you.